I left my wallet in El Segundo. I got to get it, but I'll wait for prices to drop, though. Inflation's eating away at my bank account. Prices so high, it's getting hard to count. The Fed says chill. It's only transitory. What's that even mean? Consumers are starting to worry. Experts say the economy's peaking. Stock market gains showing signs of leaking. Earnings are looking good. No one seems to care. They're just looking around for signs of the bear. He's still sleeping. That's what we're thinking. But it won't take much to break this hibernation, scare the bulls into sector rotation. It's time to sit back, rebalance, and assess, and ride real low on the Investopedia Express. Welcome aboard, one and all. The Investopedia Express is brought to you by New Reds. The home buying process can be overwhelming, confusing, and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. New Reds can let you know what to expect and take you through the mortgage process step by step. Learn more at newres.com slash findmyhome. That's newres.com slash findmyhome. Well, stocks fell last week for the first week in four as rising concerns over inflation and the rise in new COVID cases outweighed strong retail sales data and better than expected quarterly earnings reports from the big U.S. banks. But the bond market continues to buck inflation fears as the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield fell to around 1.3%. Still, 2021 has been good to equity investors around the world so far. Nearly every major global equity index has double-digit gains so far this year, except for China's equity market. It's down 2% in U.S. dollar terms. But check these gains out. Taiwan, up 21.6%. The Netherlands, 21.4%. Canada, 19.7%. Sweden, 18.2%. And India, at 17.9%. The U.S., about 16.4%. Here in the U.S. market, though, something very strange is afoot when we look at intermarket correlation. The correlation between the S&P 500 and the benchmark U.S. Treasury 10-year index has moved positive for the first time since the taper tantrum era back in 2013. That's when Fed Chair Ben Bernanke started reducing the amount of bond purchases the Fed was making every month. That means that when equity markets have moved up or down, bond returns have been going up or down too. Usually, they move in opposite directions. Why is this happening? Well, investors aren't completely sold on the economic recovery here in the U.S. They are worried about the Delta variant of the coronavirus, and they're worried about the impact inflation is having on spending. So they continue to buy government bonds, sending prices higher and yields lower. With no yields in government bonds, investors keep buying stocks. Eventually, this correlation will break, and either stocks will break higher or bond yields will reverse and finally head higher, sending stocks lower. Let's keep an eye on this contango together. We'll keep an eye on oil prices also in the coming weeks. Over the weekend, OPEC and its Russia-led oil-producing allies called OPEC Plus agreed to unleash millions of barrels of bottled-up crude oil over the next two years, committing to restore all of the cuts they made at the start of the pandemic as economies pick up and crude demand recovers. If you hadn't noticed, oil prices have been rising and so have gasoline prices. Early last year, OPEC Plus slashed 9.7 million barrels a day of its collective output, equivalent to about 10% of the demand we saw back in 2019. It's restored about 4 million barrels of that. The deal announced over the weekend calls for the remainder of those cuts to be unwound through late next year. What's happening in the U.S. housing market? We should ask our friends at New Res. Well, mortgage rates have hooked back down. The average for the 30-year fixed mortgage fell to 2.88%. That's absurdly cheap, but many buyers are saying, hold the mortgage, please. I'm good. An analysis of county records by Redfin shows that 30% of U.S. home purchases in the first four months of this year were all cash deals. Where was that happening? Well, Florida, really. That was the dominant location with West Palm Beach and Naples, Florida in the lead for cash buyers. 
Let's get set up for the week ahead. A rocky week for investors last week ended with losses across the major U.S. equity averages, with the Nasdaq taking the biggest hit, dropping 1.6% over the past five days. Blowout earnings have done little to impress investors, who may have those expectations baked in. Of the two dozen or so S&P 500 companies that beat analyst estimates for the second quarter earnings last week, the average earnings per share result was 18% higher than expected, according to FactSet. But shares of those companies fell 0.6% on average after reporting. What have you done for me lately? Well, the earnings parade picks up pace this week with companies including United Airlines, Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson, and Netflix all reporting results, among others. Investors only care about the future, especially the next six months, as companies battle inflation, a cautious consumer, the potential research of COVID-19 in pockets around the world, and a very tight labor market. We'll be paying close attention to the forward-looking guidance on those quarterly conference calls over the next few weeks. But let's dig into Netflix and chill for a minute. The stock is down 2% in 2021 and only up about 7.5% in the past year. That's far underperforming the broader market. Netflix is due to report results on July 20th, with investors and analysts expecting to have a sharp focus on the content schedule rather than on last quarter's results. Netflix needs more hits to grow its global subscribers, which total a little over 200 million people. That's the largest subscriber count of all the streaming services. On the content runway for Netflix for the rest of this year and early 2022, Fear Street and Money Heist are expected to be released this quarter and Cobra Kai and The Witcher in Q4. New seasons of Stranger Things, Ozark, The Crown, and Bridgerton are anticipated in 2022. If Netflix runs short on cash, expect it to do what it always does, raise prices by a dollar and pray that no one drops the service. That usually works pretty well. On the economic front, the U.S. housing market takes center stage again this week with the release of data on housing starts, building permits, mortgage applications, and existing home sales. After falling 9.5% in April, U.S. housing starts jumped 3.6% to an annualized rate of 1.57 million units in May, despite rising labor and materials costs. The price of lumber has dropped 60% from its recent highs, but it's still 40% higher than it was a year ago. But mortgage rates remain ridiculously low. That should continue to push home builders back into the market. Keep an eye on home builder stocks like Toll Brothers and Pulte Homes for market reaction. But still, the red-hot housing market may be cooling just as the summer heats up. Existing home sales fell 0.9% in April as prices continued to soar in markets like Phoenix, San Diego, and Denver. The S&P Case-Shiller National Home Price Index was up more than 14% year-over-year in April. That was the largest gain in its 30-year history. Inventory's been tight across the country, but there's still plenty of buyers out there and ultra-low interest rates. The European Central Bank meets on interest rates this Thursday, and while no one expects the central bank to start hiking rates, investors are waiting to see if and when it will start tapering its asset purchases and its fiscal stimulus measures. The eurozone recovery has stalled out in recent months, and the rise of the Delta COVID-19 variant may force partial closures of some countries to foreign visitors right in the heart of tourism season. Expect the ECB to stay the course, just like its U.S. counterpart. In the land of the unicorns, one company pranced higher and prouder than the rest. That was WeWork, the real estate-slash-office space sharing company that was once valued at more than $47 billion. That was before the pandemic. That was before its notorious founder and CEO was ousted by the company's venture capital backers. And that was before we all really understood how WeWork's business actually works 
and that the magic of unicorns and messianic leaders is just that, magic. No one has covered WeWork's incredible rise and spectacular collapse like Maureen Farrell of the Wall Street Journal. Together with her colleague, Elliot Brown, the two have captured that meteoric journey in a brand new book called The Cult of We, and we are lucky enough to have Maureen, my former colleague and friend, on The Express this week. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you. And your book is such a terrific read, great reporting, but it also has that breathless pace as it follows WeWork's trajectory and its charismatic founder. Let's start with him, Adam Newman. The financial world and the media love stories about larger-than-life founders like Steve Jobs, Sam Walton, Jeff Bezos. For those who don't know, who is Adam Newman, and how did he manage to emerge as this cult-like leader of WeWork? So Adam Newman was the CEO and co-founder of WeWork, which is an office space leasing company. Maybe it doesn't sound like it's going to be the wildest tale ever, but he was one of the most charismatic CEOs, craziest in many, many ways, as I hope the book illustrates. <laughs> and yeah, he built this company. He founded it right after the financial crisis and built an office space leasing company to be a $47 billion company. And then sort of basically it collapsed under him almost. And he was pushed out as CEO, sort of on top of the world. And six weeks later, he wasn't. He was out of his own company. Right. And if you see him walking down the street, you're going to pay notice. This guy's six foot five, right? He's got gorgeous long hair. He is charismatic, huge smile, loud, larger than life, likes his good tequila. This guy was more than just your ordinary, I got my MBA and now I'm going to be a CEO type of guy. This was a visionary, right? Completely. And he may be barefoot if you see him. (laughs) There's pictures of him walking around the streets of New York City barefoot on top of all those things. Not because he can't afford shoes, because he can't. Yes, he can definitely afford shoes. Even after getting pushed out of his company, he could afford nicer and nicer shoes. But yes, one of the things people told me about him, especially just some bankers who knew him, were like, We all just wanted to be him. Like he looked like a rock star, but he was a CEO and he was like just super cool. He was crazy. I mean, he'd offer, you'd go into his office at 10 a.m. He'd talk to you about fundraising and he'd give you a tequila shot or offer you one at 10 a.m. Like everything was wild about him. Yeah, shaggy hair, clothes, and he was a visionary. And he, from the beginning, one of the things that really jumped out to us about him is I mean, even before he started the company, it was going to be the biggest company in the world. And he knew it. He would talk about it like that. He would talk about he would open a WeWork somewhere and knew it was going to be occupied in a few weeks. He always taught he could see the future. He could create it. And he would make you feel as if you were living in the future he was going to he was telling you about. Right. So almost just by talking about it and dreaming the biggest dreams he was trying to manifest what would actually come true. And in some cases, he got pretty close, Maureen. This guy raised a ton of money, that valuation of $47 billion. We, We'll get into what the actual business is all about, but it's not like anybody can just do that. This guy was special in that respect. Oh, exactly. It was, I mean, pretty incredible. And that's what a lot of people around him say. Like, if you ever doubted him, he kept on doing it, manifesting it, as you said. He would say, oh, we're going to have 100 locations when he had one and barely opened one. And people thought he was kind of crazy. We're going to raise... People would say, you've raised money from almost everyone on the planet. How can you raise more money? And then he you know, gets $4.4 billion from an investor in Japan. Like Every time anyone doubted him, he came through and then some with what he said he was going to do, these grandiose announcements. WeWork emerged at a time when unicorn tech companies roamed the land. They were grazing freely on billions of dollars in venture capital. They could almost name their own valuations. And in fact, Newman did that as he was raising money for WeWork. He was saying, 
what the company should be worth, despite the fact that it was you know, barely off the ground. What was going on at the time in Silicon Valley, New York, when WeWork emerged in the land of unicorns, as we call it? It was exactly that. I mean, there was this so much private capital, so much was moving out of the public markets that normally would have been there to get after these private companies to get the next Facebook early on before it went public because companies were going public later and later. It was just sort of everything was driving to the park, private markets to go after these huge returns. And it was this idea that there were only going to be a handful of founders that would get you these returns, these Facebook like thousand percent, whatever. It was some crazy number for putting money in. So people were, the capital was so plentiful and he knew how to take that supply demand imbalanced and use it to his advantage. You can't talk about WeWork though, right? Without talking about SoftBank, the massive Japanese conglomerate and investment firm run by Masayoshi Son. Without SoftBank, WeWork's story might be very different. Tell us about the tangled relationship between those two companies. Sure. So Basically, as we said, I mean, Adam Newman had almost gone around the globe and gotten checks and checks to fuel the rise of this office space company. It cost a lot of money to open up every single office, which was part of it. You know, they needed a lot of cash. So he had raised more than a billion dollars. And then there was just a question of how much more money can you possibly get in the private markets? Then in walks Masayoshi Son. He was almost close to closing one of the biggest tech private investment funds ever. It was going to be $100 billion. He got a lot of money from Saudi Arabia, committed capital. And it was just this, I don't know if serendipitous is the right word because it did not end well, but cataclysmic meeting of these two individuals who are both like the most risk-taking, Masa likes to, as he's called, likes to talk about having been one of the wealthiest men in the world and then having lost around the dot-com boom, then having lost more money than anybody else <laughs> in the dot-com bust. And he's very proud of it. He takes huge risks. So these two men meet. I love the story of when they meet for the first investment, he would get $4.4 billion from Masa. Masa would commit to it. And it came after a 12-minute tour of WeWork. And then he happens to get into Adam Newman's, I guess, a little scared that this guy comes in, only has 12 minutes for him. But he's about to go meet Trump right after his inauguration. <laughs> so Adam goes with him on the in a car up to Trump Tower. And by the time he gets out of the car, they've sketched out this plan for world domination and a $4.4 billion check he's going to get. Incredible. And, and Moss is his own character. I can't wait for your book on him one day. But there was something very special about the way Adam Newman would take people into the WeWork offices to raise money, right? He knew by generating that buzz, like putting the music up, brewing good coffee, getting people into the kitchens, eating a pizza, it felt like Coachella at work, right? Was that part of the vision? Oh, completely. It was, yeah, exactly that. I mean, he would call it activate the space. He would send out an email to people and say, there's going to be ice cream in the main communal space, or there was going to be beer or something. So people would go all get together, I'll be talking. And yeah, he had this way of just walking through the space and saying, oh, things like this always happen. Look at it. And yeah, he had this way of taking people on these tours and they would just couldn't really believe what they saw. And I mean, he would say things like we, I mean, it, it got crazier and crazier, but he's like, we're not a real estate company. I mean, look at this community and we should be valued like a community company, which I don't know how, what that is. <laughs> yeah, I totally, I totally want to get into that because that was one of the things that fascinated me most. So for a few years there, right, from 2015 or 20, to 2019 or so, 
WeWork looked like it couldn't go wrong. Their office spaces were buzzing. They were throttling towards this blockbuster IPO. It was trying to transform its perception from being an office sharing or real estate company to being an experience company, the we company, right? Content, community, good coffee, all the right buzzwords that investors just love to binge on. Where did that vision come from? Was that Adam? That was Adam. I mean, the amazing thing about him or the like ultimate irony is it was, yeah, this community company, but also a tech company. I mean, he knew tech companies got huge valuations. So all of those things could make it a tech company. He literally could not use his like iPad. <laughs> People like joked about that. Like he could not do anything with technology, yet he would be able to sort of integrate into his conversations with investors who were some of the most sophisticated investors in the world who knew tech very well. He knew how to sort of effortlessly weed in these buzzwords that everyone wanted to hear. He knew where it would take him. It would make the valuation higher and higher and higher. And it's kind of amazing. I think he just saw what everyone wanted and made himself and the company into that. And it was all those things that you just described. A master salesman. So they did have this metric when they finally put out an S1 filing or got ready to go public that for Investopedia fans and for me as the editor, this one blew my doors off. (laughs) Community-based EBITDA. That's a first. And I'm totally putting it in our (laughs) lexicon because that's a made-up term, but it's fantastic. What is community-based EBITDA, Maureen? Basically adjusting out for most of the things that you need to build out a WeWork space, basically, it was saying, you know, we may be losing billions of dollars if you look at profits. Instead, no, we don't have profits. We have losses. But don't look at that. Strip out marketing costs, other aspects of building out our properties. Take all of that out. And this community-adjusted EBITDA is what you get. And we're actually like, don't look here. We are profitable. And you have to look at it by stripping out all these costs. And I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, so ridiculous that, and Adam would say to everyone, and we've seen him in so many interviews saying, we're profitable, we're profitable, we're profitable. Then this S1 comes out, every single year, they've lost just as much as they've made, if not more in revenue. And yeah, he was still trying to say that they were profitable. And then when they couldn't go public, they were literally about to run out of money if SoftBank didn't come in and give them this infusion of capital. And they had so little cash that they weren't even going to be able to pay for layoffs of their employees if they didn't get this money from SoftBank. The wind down was so quick and exhilarating. It was almost more exciting than the wind up. But let's get back to Newman for a second. He wasn't just the founder of the face and the CEO of the company. He was in fact getting WeWork to loan him the money to buy the properties that WeWork would eventually lease to create its own shared office spaces, the old double dip as we call it. How did that work and how did he get away with it? I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, just to go back to what we were, you were just saying, I mean, they were in this cohort of Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, all these companies were going out, raising giant sums of money, going to transform industries. He, Adam Newman, very much followed the CEO of Uber's playbook, going out around the globe, raising billions. So Travis Kalanick never took money out of the company. Adam Newman was going to the same investors and was taking money out of the company every step of the way, taking loans out. He basically would tell people, if you're going to invest, if you don't, fine, then don't invest. This is what I'm taking out. We have more demand. He would say things like, there's more demand for investment. So to help you all out, (laughs) I'm going to sell some shares. He got JP Morgan and other banks to also lend him money. He got the company. He took loans out from the company. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I mean, it was just a 
bored. He had a very pliant board. He had everyone sort of wanting something from him and willing to overlook all these other things that are huge red flags every step of the way. The cult-like messianic figure getting away with anything he wants, people parting the ways as he walks through, and then also not just double dipping to buy the properties that he would eventually lease back to his own company, but living an enormously lavish lifestyle, private jets, surf coach. He's got his own hairstylist that would travel with him, homes around the world, enormous pieces of property and great big vacations, and then throwing parties that were literally like Coachella for his employees and investors, hiring in the biggest bands in the world, you know, having these blowouts and getting away with it while the company's bleeding all this cash. It was unbelievable. I mean, I think that was one of the things. I mean, the more we heard about his lifestyle, yeah, his surf coach, he moved him from Hawaii and his entire family and put them up in an apartment, put their kids in a school that they started at WeWork. And I think they had nannies also. He had a nanny for all of his, each one of his children. So many homes. It was just over the top. They had a private jet that WeWork bought. I mean, you almost never see a private company have a private jet. And not only did he get a private jet, it was the top of the line, $63 million private jet. And he used it to just go. I mean, we saw they were supposed to go public in September. In June, within a span of like a week, he went to Costa Rica twice. He had two flights down there to go surfing. And he's in the Dominican Republic and the Maldives. Like just you just looked at his plane records over a month or so in the key, like the key moments of the IPO. It's like mind boggling. Right. So where is he now? Did he parachute out with a fortune? What happened to Adam Newman and where can we find him today? Sure. He did parachute out with a gigantic fortune. I mean, it was really unbelievable. As I said, it was like we all watched the company crumble. It was about to run out of money. And we just talked about it. He had all these loans out tied to his stock at $47 billion. The stock could have gone to zero. So he was in a position to potentially be in bankruptcy. He had been kicked out of his own company, yet he managed to negotiate the most insane exit package ever. It was basically, there are a lot of pieces to it, but he got almost a $200 consulting contract over four years from SoftBank. 200 million, um, I think you Sorry, two, yes, not 200, $200 million. I think it was about 100 $200 a second. Yeah, <laughs> million dollars. This is as they're also laying off tons of employees. He's able to st- sell almost about a billion dollars in stock. They reissued his loan. They sort of gave him, took away the loan, SoftBank, from JP Morgan. There was ultimately some litigation and he walked away still doing incredibly well. He sort of, he won out in the litigation. He's walked away, you know, a billionaire more so after. I mean, he built this amazing company, but he also ran it into the ground, all these decisions he made. And he walked away with just an unbelievable package. We call that failing up in this business. And some people are really, really good at it. So you got to tip your hat there. Where's WeWork now? The recent reports are that it'll go public via a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company at a much lower valuation and a much simpler business model. Where's the company now? Where's it headed? Sure. So we like to kind of joke that WeWork hits like every financial like moment, like the zeitgeist of the moment. It was raising private capital, the biggest amounts. Now SPACs are basically all the rage right now. So of course WeWork is going public through a SPAC. It struck a deal. It's valued the company about eight to $9 billion. 
And it's announced the merger. It will sort of merge into the SPAC probably in the next two months. So everyone should be able to buy shares. They got a CEO who comes from the real estate industry, pretty like traditionally successful CEO. He seems like he's setting out to clean up the business. I think it's going to be a more boring, scaled back real estate company. I mean, they sold the wave pool company <laughs> that Adam Newman purchased. They sold the school. They shut it, they shut it down and then sort of sold the rights actually back to Adam Newman's and his wife. And yeah, now it's just, it's just what it was, an office space subleasing company. One that I think, I don't know if you agree, Caleb, but it's a cool looking company. I mean, the spaces are basically interesting looking. I, I like the aesthetic. I mean, it's been mimicked so much from WeWork, but I mean, it's still office space. Absolutely. At the end of the day, you're renting a desk, you're renting internet, you're getting free coffee, but there is something to that community aspect that hopefully we'll go back to because obviously the pandemic crushed that business right mm-hmm. at, at, after Newman crushed that business. So it had the double whammy. It's coming back at a lower valuation, but at the end of the day, we're talking about the bet that people will not want to, or companies won't want to own their own office spaces everywhere. They're going to want to have seven desks in cities around the world where they can put employees at will. Do you think that will work in a post-pandemic world? It's going to be really interesting to see, because I think the case you just spelled out is definitely what they're going for. And we'll just see how well they're able to capitalize on it. It does seem like that, you know, there's you want less space and you want it to be more elastic. You can come and go, pay for it monthly if you're a big corporation. So it's definitely what they're trying to do. We'll see how they go about it. But I mean, it does feel like they're sort of well poised for this moment if they if they do it right. So Maureen, this has all the makings of a movie or a Netflix series. I don't know if you've already optioned this out or not, or if somebody's come to you, but if you were casting for Adam Newman, who would you cast out of Hollywood today? Well, it is happening right now. There is actually, there were two things going on. I mean, Jared Leto of My So-Called Life and much other, many other aspects of fame is playing him in a TV show that should come out soon. We actually optioned ours and Cousin Greg, Nick Braun from Succession. Oh, great call. Um, was, yeah, I think, I think he would have been awesome. Maybe someday he will. It does not look like it's moving forward right now because of this other one that is moving forward. But I don't know. I think they're both like really good choices. I'm curious to watch Jared Leto's performance. And Anne Hathaway is going to play Rebecca Newman, who is, I mean, just an incredible character unto herself. Right. We didn't even get into her, but folks, you got to read about her in the book. And there are so many good stories within the story of this book. I was following your reporting on WeWork from a, a few years ago. And I said, I know Maureen's onto a book here and it is terrific. You and Elliot have done a terrific job of the storytelling, the reporting, and just the weaving it together in this really fast paced book. That's so enjoyable to read. Congrats on that. And thanks Thank for joining so the Express. Thank you so much. This was really fun. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Ron in New Haven, Connecticut. Ron suggested reflation this week, and we like that term because it's kind of the mirror opposite of what's happening across the U.S. and other major economies around the world right now. According to my favorite website, reflation is a fiscal or monetary policy designed to expand output, stimulate spending, and curb the effects of deflation, which usually occurs after a period of economic uncertainty or a recession. The term may also be used to describe the first phase of an economic recovery after a period of contraction. 
Reflation policies typically include the following. Reducing taxes. Paying lower taxes make corporations and employees wealthier. It's hoped that the extra earnings will be spent in the economy, lifting demand and prices for goods. Lowering interest rates. That makes it cheaper to borrow money and less rewarding to stow capital away in savings accounts, which encourages people and businesses to spend more freely. Changing the money supply. When central banks boost the amount of currency and other liquid instruments in the banking system, the cost of money falls. That generates more investment and puts more money in the hands of consumers. And capital projects. Large investment projects create jobs, they boost employment figures, and the number of people that have spending power. Well, Ron in New Haven, we know taxes aren't going down. If anything, the Biden administration is trying to raise taxes, especially on the wealthy and on corporations. The Federal Reserve is not lowering interest rates either. There's nowhere to go but into negative territory, and we know that's not going to happen. Rates will be going up in 2023 and maybe sooner. What about changing the money supply? Well, the Fed has no plans to do that either, and Fed Chair Powell said last week that the central bank will continue its monthly bond purchases totaling some $120 billion for quite a while. Well, how about capital projects? That's something we might see as U.S. policymakers battle over a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Expect some form of that to get passed this year. So, no reflation anytime soon, but plenty more inflation, at least for the next few months. Good suggestion, Ron. Expect a pair of the ultra-chic Investopedia socks in the mail soon, and we'd like to see you rocking those the next time you go to Pepe's Pizza in New Haven. Some call that the birthplace of the American pizza, and I buy it. We'll let Reed Hastings take us out this week. Reed is the founder and former CEO of Netflix, who launched the company as a DVD rental-by-mail service in the late 1990s. Here's Reed being interviewed by my pal, Carol Master of Bloomberg Television, back in 2010, just as the company was moving into the online streaming business. We are just continue to be so blessed. I mean, internet video is growing, streaming, uh, DVD is continuing to grow for us. We're really just able to fire on all cylinders. But there's a lot of competition coming. I mean, there's Apple and Amazon and Hulu and YouTube and all kinds of companies. So this internet video thing is going to be a big market with a lot of competitors. And that's the business of the future, correct? That is the business we're doing today. In fact, we're streaming movies now to thousands of devices, to millions of subscribers. It's just really coming together. Hastings would later go on to say that Netflix's only competition was our need for sleep. But talk about visionaries. Netflix now has more than 200 million global subscribers today, topping Amazon, which has 150 million, Spotify with 140 million, and Tencent Video, which has 119 million subscribers. Make sure you get your sleep this week, but don't forget to dream big. Special thanks to New Res for sponsoring the Investopedia Express. If you're ready to buy a new home, the right resources can make a big difference. From finding your dream home to navigating the mortgage process, New Res has you covered for all your home buying needs. Learn more at newres.com slash buymyhome. That's newres.com slash buymyhome. We'll talk again a little further on down the line. <music>